Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Leadership support for More Perfect is provided by the Joyce Foundation. This is More Perfect. I'm Jad Abumrad. This week, a conversation about a mystery. It's a mystery, actually, that's connected to one of my favorite stories we've done so far. The political thicket. The political thicket. You know, the court must not enter the political thicket. And the imagery of the thicket is that, uh, you know, the deer very proudly with his new horns goes into the thicket, gets entangled, and can never get out. Frankfurter's claim was, once the courts are in, there will be nothing beyond it, and someday the courts will be uh, forced to declare winners and losers of very high-profile elections. If you haven't heard this story, definitely hit pause right now. Go back in the feed, find the story called Political Thicket, listen to it. It is definitely one of my favorites. It's essentially uh, the story of a case that many people point to as being the first time that the Supreme Court got into politics, sort of soiled themselves with politics, which you can make a beeline from that moment to Bush v. Gore. That case, 1962, it was so traumatic for uh, the court that two, it literally broke two justices, like shattered two human beings. And one of those two justices, Justice Felix Frankfurter, is at the center of the mystery we're about to tell you about. But just to give you a sense of who he was, I'm going to play you a little clip from that earlier story. Um, he was extremely smart. A towering figure. But as a person, Justice Fra- Justice Frankfurter, he wasn't necessarily the nicest person. I heard that from everyone I talked to. I always call him a bantam rooster. Uh, he was a difficult, crusty figure. He was short. He had a little bit of a pouch on him. He was one of the most condescending, egotistical of justices. So Justice Felix Frankfurter, not the nicest guy, but important. Presided over a ton of really important cases, like, for example, Brown v. Board of Education. Big one, where we began the slow march towards desegregating our school system. Anyhow, the mystery today deals with his papers. These are uh, the notes that he took while he was on the bench, you know, drafts of decisions that he wrote, dissents he wrote, uh, memos, uh, backs and forth with the other justices, maybe the notes he took when they were all in that secret conference room that they go to when they're arguing. It's the kind of stuff that like people like us are like, oh man, we gotta get those papers. But in this case, there are no papers. Which brings us to the story of one of the biggest heists in Supreme Court history, the vanishing of Justice Felix Frankfurter's papers from the Library of Congress. One day they were there, and then poof, gone. And ever since people have been like, where where, where are they? What happened? Who took them? Harvard historian and New Yorker staff writer Jill Lepore, who you may remember uh, was a big part of our guns episode we just released, she recently tried to get to the bottom of this paper caper, and more perfect producer, Sean Ramos firm, talk to her about it. In such an ecosystem where it's so hard to gain access to these papers, to these documents, at some point someone might try to gain access to them unlawfully. Yeah. Which you once wrote a wonderful story about that I was hoping you could maybe retell. And I, I was thinking, yeah. here we are telling stories, so I, I maybe... 
just uh yeah so imagine uh we're sitting by the fire yeah you can hear it kind of crackle and <laughs> yeah. there's uh the evening's crickets this is my plan field there it is there it is but yeah i like it i like it <laughs> so the largest heist in the history of the library of congress i guarantee you would not have guessed because i would not have guessed <laughs> that it was the papers of Felix Frankfurter. More than a 1,000 pages of Frankfurter's papers were stolen from the Library of Congress in the early 1970s. They have never been recovered, not a single page of them. It was a kind of extraordinary heist that was investigated by the FBI. They had a prime suspect. They can, you know, there was a grand jury called. It was an extensive investigation, involved the nation's leading journalist, involved other members of the court, the nation's leading legal scholars were questioned and were part of the investigation. The whole thing unraveled days, hours before the Saturday Night Massacre and the sort of explosion of Watergate and was quickly forgotten. Hmm. Does all of this, this immense personality, this historic figure, does this play into why it was his papers that were stolen or were they just the ones that were in the library at the right time for someone to steal? Yeah, I don't think we know that unless the mystery were really solved. Mm. And I felt like I got so close. What did you miss? Um, what what didn't you have to put it all together? It, can you reveal that? I, I guess when you think about it, we're trying to solve a theft you need to know the motive of the thief. And to know the motive of the thief, you need to know what was stolen. But in Frankfurter's case, his papers had only really just got to the Library of Congress. So when the papers disappeared for a long time, nobody even noticed it because they hadn't really processed them. They shouldn't probably have been letting people look at them because it's then you can it's hard to reconstruct what's missing. What's clear from what was missing of these more than 1,000 pages is that it was the best stuff. Huh. And so one theory that the FBI had early on was someone was trying to make money because you could, like, all of it, Frankfurter's correspondence with Lyndon Johnson, for instance, was missing. And you're like, oh, it's presidential signature. You could sell that. I mean, where are you going to sell these things is another question. But, like, maybe that that was <laughs> the case. The next theory that the library working with the FBI had was, okay, so it's a scholar. <laughs> and, and a scholar who just, who wants to have it, like wants to have this stuff and doesn't want anybody else to have it. Like a fanatic, well, like a collector or something. Like, a, yeah, like or just, you know, sometimes when you um, when you're working on a project, just for like a journalist, you don't want to be scooped. Scholars have the same thing. Mm. Like if you find out something incredibly juicy, like imagine that someone's reading Frankfurter's diary and finds out, okay, Frankfurter I don't know, he slept with William Douglas's wife or something. I don't know like, what it would be like. There's something. And it, are, are we it, fan-fictioning Frankfurter? Like, we're fan-fictioning Frankfurter. He's going to, like, rule against him forever. And, you know, like, just something that you'd be like, I'm going to write a biography of Frankfurter, and this is how I'm going to sell it, right? right? So the last thing you would want would be for another scholar to come. I, I've had this. I have find things in the archives all the time. And I'm like, shoot. They put it back in the box, and you give it back to the librarian, and you know that someone else is going to call it. I'm never going to get this out in time. Hmm. And you just kind of forget about it because you, you imagine it's just too cool. Someone else is going to find it. So maybe someone like that. Like that you could imagine a journalist historian. You, we can imagine this person, right? Sure. And who just can't resist. And there was no security in the Library of Congress at the time. 
I, ta- I interviewed everybody who was investigated by the FBI, and they had these hilarious stories. They're like, yeah, well, they had a photocopy. They're like a Xerox machine, like an early Xerox machine, and you like put a nickel in it. But they would just let you take folders down. It was like down the hall and up a set of stairs and through a double doors and go through the bathroom <laughs> and out the back door of the bathroom, and there was this one Xerox machine you could put a nickel in. And you just walk out the door with your folders. And, like, you can't do that. Anyone. Not in the Library of Congress, really not anywhere. And it was this case that actually led to a crackdown. So the FBI quickly came to the conclusion that whoever had bothered to do the incredible labor of stealing all those papers, because a lot of smuggling, would have been someone who both really wanted to write about Frankfurter, had found something incredibly juicy, but had been thwarted by the kind of cabal of Frankfurter people, which was, these people are called the hot dogs. They really are called who, the hot who dogs. Who are the hot dogs? Is that not the best thing? We're sitting by the campfire. Now is when the hot dogs <laughs> go on the, like, we've been sharpening our wooden sticks, our green wooden sticks. Now you put on the hot dogs and roast them. The hot dogs are the former clerks of Frankfurter. Wow. They were known as the hot dogs, and they loved him. Because like many, an ordinary person, you know, apparently was just a very stand-up person to work with Hmm. when you're on the inside. And they were, you know, kind of protecting his legacy. Anyway, so the case just kind of just gets steamrolled by Watergate. But this is kind of like the Alex Jones theory of the Felix Frank. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) Should I sit out? Maybe it's not. It's not. No, it's not. To be in fairness. Because actually there are two incredibly uh, diligent legal scholars (laughs) Piece, piece this element of the story together. Um, and I, uh, it's, it's a little conspiracy theory-minded, but it's not beyond the pale. So one of the pieces of paper that appears to have been missing from Frankfurter's papers is really interesting and was potentially quite damaging to William Rehnquist, mm. who had been nominated to serve on the court and whose confirmation proceedings were happening right at the time that Frankfurter's papers were ransacked. Hmm. What was controversial for Rehnquist was the issue that had thwarted Nixon's earlier judicial appointments, which was his relationship to segregation. Nixon, who you'll recall was pursuing a Southern strategy trying to woo uh, white Southern Democrats had nominated some potential justices who were segregationists or certainly had been segregationists earlier in their career. In any case, Rehnquist was not, but Rehnquist served as a clerk for Robert Jackson in the 1950s and asked by Jackson to prepare a memo about Brown v. Board. Rehnquist had written a memo in which he wrote, I realize it is an unpopular and unhumanitarian position for which I have been excoriated by liberal colleagues, but I think Plessy v. Ferguson was right and should be reaffirmed. (laughs) Plessy v. Ferguson, the 1896 Mm. decision uh, that instituted the legal principle of separate but equal to establish the system of Jim Crow, legalize the system of Jim Crow. And so it's published, you know, in Newsweek, and then it becomes explosive and a real big problem for Rehnquist during his confirmation. Hmm. Rehnquist worked very hard to quiet that storm. He said, I wasn't expressing my own views. I was asked to write a memo about Justice Jackson's views. Whoa. And and Jackson's (laughs) former secretary, Elsie Douglas, she told reporters, that's just a lie. Like, Jackson didn't ask his clerks to write 
down memos about what Jackson should think. Jackson knew what he thought. He asked his clerks to tell him what they thought so he could elaborate, you know, so he could kind of deliberate on the multiple positions that they would present him with. So Rehnquist sends a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee trying to explain all of this. Senate Judiciary Committee threatens to hold hearings over the holiday or after Christmas. This is December of 1971. Uh, Nixon starts putting pressure on, on senators. And you can imagine somebody at this point might have thought, I wonder well, if there's anything in Frankfurter's papers, which are huge, which have just been given to the, you know, recently given to the Library of Congress that would cast light on the Rehnquist nomination. And one of the things that is no longer in Frankfurter's papers, but appears to have been before the, le- the theft, is a letter that Rehnquist wrote to Frankfurter in 1955 on the question of segregation. The memo to Jackson was from 1952. Oh. Uh, and there are these two legal scholars, Brad Snyder and John Barrett, who argue that Rehnquist would have revisited the arguments that he made in 1952 in that letter to Frankfurter. And it Someone from the FBI or from the Nixon White House or one of the White House plumbers or any of these nefarious yeah. people could have been told by Nixon, by Haldeman, by you know any of these jokers in the White House, Nixon White House, <laughs> get yourself, to get your ass down to the Library of Congress and pull anything from Rehnquist from Frankfurter's papers. But to hide your tracks, just take a bunch of that crap out. <laughs> you know, when we want to make it, we want to make it look like someone actually stole Frankfurter's papers, like as if anybody can't, you know what I mean? Like that it was the whole thing was yet another Watergate cover-up, you know, yet another kind of not a dirty trick, which is kind of a cool theory, isn't it? It's great. It's great. Is that conspiracy theory also to you, in your eyes, the most credible or do you, do you have an alternate theory of who may have taken them? Do you think it could have been just some nebbish academic or, or biographer? I do have a theory, I'm a fair honest. amount of evidence for that theory. Okay. I can't tell you that theory. Oh. And in that theory, we are disappointed to learn that it is very unlikely that the papers still exist. The FBI had a prime suspect yeah. who denied any involvement and re- did not accept an offer for kind of amnesty in exchange for returning the papers. So although, you know, they tended to believe that that person probably had the papers. The FBI never made an arrest. The FBI absolutely never made an arrest. And they, they talked to a lot of people. They did, they did take the investigation really seriously. But on the other hand, if the FBI had conducted the heist in the first place, <laughs> wouldn't their investigation have been just designed to cover up sure. that they were the culprits? It would have to be thorough. Yeah, right. I mean, they're not going to be like, oh, the Library of Congress calls and Frankfurter's <laughs> papers are missing and be like, yeah, we're too busy because that would look that that would look very suspicious if they'd taken them. I love that theory. I think sure. it's a fun theory. <laughs> it explains a lot. It's great. But, it's it, great. but, it, but it, there's very little evidence. For it. I'm just going to be completely clear. There's almost no evidence for it whatsoever. It's just that the timeline works out. It's a little bit like, you know, how the New York Times published that timeline of the kind of, well, this is the day that Donald Trump Jr. met with uh, Natalia, and then this is the day that WikiLeaks published that, you know, the timeline lines up beautifully, but that is not enough. Coming up, we'll take a step back and ask, how in the world did this happen? Could this happen? More Perfect is supported by NetSuite. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. 
But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash moreperfect. netsuite.com slash moreperfect. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Like who gets to decide what happens to these court papers, this bit of history? That's coming up. This is More Perfect. I'm Jad Abumrad. Back to our conversation with More Perfect producer Sean Ramsfirm and Harvard historian and New Yorker staff writer Jill Lepore. So, so what's the Supreme Court's official policy and all the papers that go through the Supreme Court? What do they do with all that stuff? The Supreme Court's official policy is it is none of your business. Mm. It's very surprising. I myself was frankly surprised to discover this, that the National Records Act, the Presidential Records Act, legislation that protects the other papers of the federal government specifically excludes the Supreme Court. So what happens is completely up to the justices, including, most importantly, the discussions that the judges have in conference and their notes from those discussions and the papers that their clerks assemble for them in preparing how to consider a case or preparing for a case that they decide not to consider. It's completely the discretion of the justice whether to preserve that for the future, for historians, for the public, for that matter, uh, for journalists. They could destroy it all, and they often do. And how far back does this date? It goes back to John Marshall, who's one of the most important chief justices. Marshall was an incredibly effective leader of the court. But he, he, he under his tenure, the court gained an enormous amount of stature. But he really believed that for the justices to be able to confer with full candor, their deliberations needed to be secret in perpetuity. Hmm. A lot of people at the time opposed it. Jefferson in particular thought it was completely inexcusable. That hmm. a, a, a really important value in a republic is transparency. And Marshall was essentially making a power grab. I mean, a bit, the, 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 he loved the idea of the mystery of the court. Court hmm. and the mystique of the court. I mean, he was a great—he was a great lover of power. So um, the tradition dates from Marshall, and there are very strong arguments to be made in favor of the deliberations being kept secret. I think certainly for a period of time, but that we should never know what was behind these decisions is, I think, uh, from the vantage of a historian, 
<laughs> that's not okay. Um, but from the the political principle, I that, there are strong debates on the other side. There's a strong argument to be made that that is that it is indefensible. First of all, they can decide to save nothing. They can burn their papers, as no small number of them have indeed done. Second, they can decide they're going to give their papers to an archive. Then they can give it at an, to a really inconvenient archive. <laughs> Um, let's say there's a ruling. There's nine justices you want to read each of their conference notes and see the, pa- the folders that they assembled of papers about the case. You could very well have to go to many far-flung places, which that is, doesn't seem maybe that inconvenient maybe to your listeners. But it's hard work being a historian and getting enough money to even get to these places is hard. Uh, but these are people whose career has been spent paid by taxpayer funds to do the work of the federal government. And these, the portion of their papers that concerns the work they did for the federal government, a lot of people might say, <laughs> belongs to the public. My own view is it is indefensible that the court has no policy with regard to court-related papers of its justices. They're rules people. These people can't set a rule for themselves and live by it. I understand they don't want Congress setting a rule about it, that, that for them that falls under a separation of powers issue. But they should have the rule. And the rule just shouldn't be you can have your kids decide to burn all of your papers when you die. <laughs> what do you think it would take for such a rule at this point to be passed? I would have thought, honestly, that it might have come in the aftermath of the Bush v. Gore decision in 2000. When people might have said, you know what? <laughs> Supreme Court's really powerful. And in an era of judicial supremacy, we actually need the Supreme Court to be saving its papers. Because future generations need to understand By what means did those nine people come to that decision? If you could steal the papers of any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, or just, you know, borrow for a weekend to pour over, whose would you steal? Oh my gosh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm going to just go for the gold here. Uh Uh-huh. John Marshall. Classic. Yeah, just the kind of original guy. He was Jefferson's cousin. He served on the bench with Bushrod Washington, George Washington's cousin. These guys were making momentous decisions early on. Madison B. B. Marbury. Did he rank people into that? Who cares but me? (laughs) <laughs> I don't really want it. Was he like, was he sleeping with the boarding house owner? No, you, you chose you chose the guy who like invented the Supreme Court. That's a good choice. That's a good choice. I'm prepared to defend it. Second choice, Felix. More Perfect's Sean Ramos firm speaking with historian Jill Labore. If you want to learn more about this, definitely check out an article that she wrote in The New Yorker called The Great Paper Caper. By the way, uh, Bushrod Washington was George Washington's nephew, not cousin, but whatever. Supreme Court audio in this show is from Oye, a free law project in collaboration with the Legal Information Institute at Cornell. Leadership support for More Perfect is provided by the Joyce Foundation. Additional funding is provided by the Charles Evans Hughes Memorial Foundation. I'm Jad Abumrad. More Perfect will be back in just a few days.